This is It's All Relative, the show where we investigate crime in the family and examine its impact. Today, we are on part three of the tale of the Seifert family. If you are starting on part three, I don't know what you're doing. Go back and start at number one. Also, guys, I don't fucking pull my punches, and this is a true crime podcast. If anything in that sentence scratches some nails on a chalkboard for you, pull your earbuds out now. Also, this podcast is completely done by me, and my broke ass is not worth suing. Let's get y'all in the mood with some Elvis, and I'll see you on the other side. We're caught in a trap I can't walk out Because I love you too much, baby Why can't you see What you're doing to me When you don't believe a word I say Last week's episode ended in 1974, when Daniel Seifert's relationship with the Chicago outfit was on some seriously rocky ground. Danny's surrogate father, Felix Milwaukee Phil Aldericio, had died in prison in 1971, and he was the only person of power in the outfit who could offer him some protection. The feds had been sniffing around Danny's mob-funded business for years, and had finally threatened him with prison if he didn't inform on his partners. Danny's good friend in the outfit, Capo of the Grand Avenue crew, Joey the Clown Lombardo, had been counseling him for years about what to do, and they had finally decided to burn the business to the ground. Danny took this opportunity to give the mob the cold shoulder and start another business without any mob money or involvement. He had also taken the opportunity to secretly talk to the IRS about his involvement with the outfit. I'm guessing that information leaked, because Tony Spilatro, notorious hater of Danny and infamous mob hitman, finally got his way and the mob ordered a hit crew to take Danny out. Now, the recounting you are about to hear is a bit off, but it's a really good basic recounting of the last morning of Daniel Seifert's life. It is Chapter 11 of Family Secrets by Jeff Cohen and read by Matthew Boston. This is a robbery. Daniel Seifert was already afraid for his life when the masked gunman finally came for him on September 27, 1974. He had been telling family members that he planned to testify against his former friend, Joey the Clown Lombardo, at an imminent pension fraud trial. He'd had a falling out with Lombardo, and he was going to tell a jury what he knew about a scheme to steal funds from the Central States Pension Fund of the Teamsters. He had armed himself, strategically placing guns at his home and workplace, and he was looking over his shoulder. Also a defendant in the case was Erwin Weiner, the mob-connected bail bondsman. He had negotiated a $1.4 million loan from the fund through his friend, 
Alan Dorfman. Seifert had been friends with Weiner, too, having done carpentry work for him, and Weiner had put up money for Seifert's startup business, International Fiberglass, in Elk Grove Village, northwest of the city. Investigators had traced part of the bad loan to the business when the money was originally to have gone to another firm, ostensibly for the manufacture of work pails. Seifert's company supposedly was contracted to produce four molds for those pails, but they didn't seem to exist. Federal agents had followed the money and had found checks written from International Fiberglass to Lombardo, where the reputed capo worked, at least on paper. The feds believed they had discovered a case of the mob laundering funds it had extracted from the pension fund, and the discovery of checks being written from International Fiberglass to Lombardo seemingly closed the loop for them. Federal authorities were confident that with Seifert's testimony, they could get convictions. He was the only witness to the transactions involving Lombardo, so his cooperation would be essential. Seifert, then 29, hadn't led a perfect life, but he was ready to put his peripheral association with the Chicago outfit behind him. He had tried to break off contact with Lombardo, and he had a new business in Bensonville, Plastic Maddox Products, running out of 1,500 square feet in a small suburban office park. A number of businesses rented space there in a group of buildings ringing a parking lot, with two driveways leading to Foster Avenue. Seifert and his wife, Emma, did most of the work there, with Emma running the office and helping with manufacturing. The couple arrived early that Friday, with their four-year-old son in tow. They had left their house and pulled up in front of the glass door to their business before 8.30 a.m. There was a single concrete step up to the doorway, cut out of the brick front wall. Inside was a small entryway, with another entry to the business's office, which had a kitchen area. Through a second door at the back of the office was a space for storage and the shop where the manufacturing took place. The Seifert's unlocked the door and went into the office area with Daniel bringing in an armload of toys for his son to play with. His son, Joseph, had been named for Lombardo. Emma Seifert began to make coffee in the small kitchen as Daniel walked back out through the entryway and to the family car to get a vacuum cleaner he wanted to bring in. It was at that moment that Emma was startled by two men with rifles bursting through the other office door, the one that led to the shop. This is a robbery. One of the men lied. The men must have entered through the business's back door and laid in wait. They wore ski masks and demanded Emma's husband. Unaware of what was happening inside, Daniel started to make his way back into the business when he was met by one of the men in the entryway. The man struck him with the gun, knocking him to the ground. There was a gunshot. Somehow, Daniel made it back to his feet, and he was running. He bolted away from the front door and across the blacktop parking lot. He went as fast as he could go, trying to get to the building opposite his own. But waiting for him there was another member of the hit team, a stocky man in a ski mask carrying another rifle. His job apparently was to cut off any possible escape, the exact scenario that was now unfolding. Seifert made it across the lot, went around the corner of the building, and began to run across a stretch of mowed grass. 
his pursuer, though, was too close. There was another shot, and a round struck Seaford in the knee as he ran. He grabbed at it, but went down in a heap. In the grass now, too, was the gunman. He came up to where the bleeding Seaford was crumpled and stood over him. The brief chase was over. The man pointed his shotgun straight at Seaford's head, the muzzle of the gun hovering just behind Seaford's left ear as he lay there. The gunman fired, killing his victim instantly and sending a spent shell flitting through the air. The cold mission accomplished, the murder team piled into a pair of getaway cars, forgetting to pick up a pair of handcuffs that one of them had dropped near the door of the business. The first car was a brown Ford LTD, and the second was a blue Dodge Challenger, turning out onto Foster and rocketing away toward Illinois Route 83 to head south for Elmhurst. The cars made it to a Pontiac dealership in that western suburb not far from Route 83 where the men removed a few things from the LTD, left it, and took off again in the Challenger. A police alert had been issued for a shooting in Bensonville, along with a description of the vehicles. Happening by was a police trainee at the wheel of an Elmhurst squad car, with a senior officer in the passenger seat. They had watched as the car's switch was made, and they started a pursuit. The Challenger turned right, and began weaving through commuter traffic on Grand Avenue, even bumping cars out of its way, then accelerating and putting some distance between the men and the Elmhurst cruiser. The trainee made it where the Challenger had turned south onto York Road, but the driver of the muscle car ahead of him had put his foot all the way to the floor. It was vanishing as the Elmhurst squad siren blared futilely. The officers sped up, but the Challenger ducked into a residential area, accelerating again as it raced toward a Lake Street frontage road and the Cook County line. A few moments later, it was lost, disappearing for good as it arrived in North Lake. Okay, so not to confuse everyone, but there were things that were not known about the murder from the time of the murder up until the Family Secrets trial in the early 2000s. There were things that were suspected, rumored, or even talked about among those in the know, but there was no proof for it until recently, and there are some things that have only come out since the Family Secrets trial was finished. Cohen's book, from which the previous audio came, was originally published in 2009, just after the completion of the Family Secrets trial. It relies on information publicly available from that investigation and trial. Probably due to the nature of the book, one being specifically about the Seaforts and two coming from the insider perspective of the people who lived it, the Seafort slash McCarran collaborative book Deadly Secrets is more informative of what happened on the morning of the murder and the following years. Quote, that morning, Danny drank his coffee, smoked his usual morning cigarette, and read the paper while Emma prepared breakfast for her family. Their son, Joe, four years old at the time, was already taking after his father, not only in appearance, but also in the form of mischievousness, and he played sick to keep from having to go to daycare. Joe's older stepbrother, Nick, and stepsister, Kathy, siblings from Danny's previous marriage, finished their breakfast and began to leave for school, while Danny got ready to load the car and Emma gathered Joe's toys. Being a Friday, they had decided to bring Joe with them to their factory rather than find a babysitter on such short notice a decision that would come to haunt Joe, yet probably saved Emma's life. As Danny walked through the front door of the factory, struggling with a vacuum cleaner they were bringing with them that day, 
Emma observed him unconsciously feel for the handgun tucked into his waistband before stepping outside. She thought to herself, only a few more weeks till the trial and we can get past all of this. Through the glass at the front door, she could see Danny placing the vacuum cleaner into the trunk of their car, right next to the 12-gauge shotgun he always carried with him. As Danny and Emma made the short drive to their fiberglass factory that morning, they didn't notice spotters along their route watching their approach. Observers in cars sitting in restaurant parking lots watched them pass by. A man in a seemingly broke-down car on the side of the road radioed ahead with their progress. As they reached the small office complex where their factory was located, Danny pulled into the entrance rather than entering as he usually did through the parking lot's exit. This would seem normal to most people, but Danny always entered through the exit, which allowed full view of the back door into the factory, giving him a chance to see if someone had broken in during the night, and more importantly, if someone could still be inside. When she questioned him on this point, Emma recalls, he didn't answer and just pulled up to our parking spot near the front door. She thought he was just consumed with the upcoming trial and let it go. She exited the car and grabbed Joe out of the back seat. Danny opened the trunk and walked with Emma to the front door. As they opened the office door, nothing seemed out of place. They entered with Joe and Emma, and Emma told Danny she would start making coffee, then watched him go back outside to the car to grab the vacuum cleaner. As Emma began to fill the coffee pot with water, two masked gunmen burst through the rear door that led to the factory section of their office. Emma screamed. The men were dressed in dark clothes and wore ski masks, but the masks had no eye holes, only thin cut slits so no one could clearly see their eyes. Joe stood in shock, staring at the fierce men as they stormed into the office. Emma noticed that one of the gunmen was carrying a thick briefcase, which he set on the floor as he approached her. Don't scream, he told her. We're just going to rob you. We aren't going to hurt you. She began to reply that they had no money in the office when the other gunman pushed her to the floor just as he demanded, where is that SOB? Danny stepped unknowingly back inside the office. He had never heard the men enter and was immediately jumped by one of the gunmen. Danny started to fight furiously as a third gunman ran into the building from outside and joined in the fight. One of them managed to pull Danny's gun from his waistband, rendering him helpless as they viciously beat him with their pistols. Joe witnessed the men beating his father and recalls, my memory of the scene is only black and white. I don't remember any sound at all. I was terrified. Frozen, staring at those men beating my father, I do remember the dark red blood which is the only thing that seemed to be in color. I was so young, I just wanted them to stop and I wanted to go home. I wanted everything to go back to normal. I was just a little kid at the time and I couldn't understand what was happening. In the confusion of the fight, Emma moved Joe out of the way and scrambled for her desk where she kept a loaded thirty-eight caliber pistol but found the drawer locked. The second gunman saw Emma at the desk and immediately grabbed her and Joe and began to push them at gunpoint into the bathroom. She trembled with fear and anger. She thought she recognized the man as Danny's former partner, Joey the Clown Lombardo, because of his mannerisms and how he moved. As they were being pushed into the bathroom, she could hear the other two gunmen continuing to beat Danny. She and Joe then heard a single gunshot. Danny had been shot in the cheek and was now bleeding profusely from the beatings. By this time, Danny was already critically injured and Joe, rather than crying louder, became withdrawn and grew strangely silent. All Emma could do was focus on the man pressing the gun to her head as sounds of the violent struggle penetrated the small office. For a moment, time seemed to stand still. Then, as abruptly as everything started, sounds of the struggle ceased. Their captor told Emma not to move and slowly backed out of the bathroom into the front area, grabbing the briefcase from the floor. The office fell silent except for her young son's quiet sobs. 
Emma's heart pounded. She felt sick as she feared desperately for her husband's life. Within seconds, she gathered herself and found the courage to go out into the front office space, which was now empty. I thought that Danny might have escaped, she recalls. Signs of the struggle were everywhere, and I saw blood all over the walls in the entryway. She tried calling the police, but the lines were busy. She then ran to the desk, unlocked it, grabbed her gun from the drawer, and ran to the front door. She slowly began to push it open to look outside for Danny. I saw him running through the parking lot, being followed by two men, one carrying a pistol, and farther back, another was holding a sawed-off shotgun. To this day, she clearly remembers the glint of the shotgun standing out in the gray light of that cloudy morning, noting that it was nickel-plated. This seemingly small point only emphasizes the brazenness of these men. They knew they were going to get away with this. The mob controlled Chicago and many of the suburbs at that time. And because of its reputed grip on the local police and some politicians, it didn't have to be discreet. The Seifert, the mob wanted to make a point. The gunman holding the shotgun happened to see me open the front door and turned and pointed the gun toward me, smiling. I frantically closed the door and locked it and then tried again to call the police and finally got through and pleaded desperately for help. I then called my sister Judy. I began to cry to her. They got him. They got him. Outside, a critically wounded Danny was bleeding heavily, but he somehow found the strength to sprint to another warehouse. A fourth gunman, also with a shotgun, had been waiting outside and picked up the chase with his partners. Danny was helpless against the odds. He ran through an adjacent warehouse and out a side door with several gangsters in close pursuit. As he tried to cross the parking lot, a gunman with a pistol fired and hit Danny in the knee. He stumbled and fell beneath a large tree. A witness who had just arrived at work that morning stared in horror as another gunman, in broad daylight, calmly walked up to Danny, who was still trying to crawl away, and fired once with a shotgun to the back of Seifert's head. The killers immediately fled in three getaway cars. By now, Emma had returned to the front door and didn't see anyone nearby. She cautiously unlocked it and stepped outside, holding on to Joe with one hand while holding her pistol in the other. She frantically looked around the parking lot as witnesses started to slowly come out of nearby offices in response to all of the commotion. Emma started to break down and began to scream repeatedly to everyone around, they killed my husband, they shot my husband, end quote. I was four years old and I was there that day with my mom. I wasn't supposed to be there that day, I was supposed to be in school, but I, I did not. They had me in this, uh, it was like in an old church. And it was in the basement. It was some kind of school down there. And mm -hmm. I hated it. I did not like it at all. And, uh, you know, so that day, for whatever reason, I'm going to play, you know, I'm going to get out of it. I'm going to play sick and I'm going to play with my Hot Wheels and shit. You know, I think I'm <laughs> a good day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, everything went to shit. Like as soon as, you know, as soon as we got to the business. Yeah. So I was there. My mom was there. Um, luckily, we both survived. Yeah, no kidding. But we found out later in years we weren't supposed to survive. Really? Yeah. That, well, technically, I wasn't supposed to be there. So it would have just been my dad and my mom. And the crew that was sent was a, you know, a, a clean the house crew. They would have killed everybody. That was Joe Seifert being interviewed on a podcast called Invest in Yourself. It's quite a good podcast, so look it up. So you're four years old, I know. Do you have any memory? The memory I have is everything up to the point of where they're fighting and he gets shot through the cheek. <sighs> after that, I remember going in the bathroom, but after that, like everything's blank until I'm in the back of one of the cars. I assume it was one of the police cars and we're driving by and I saw him tangled up laying in the grass. But literally that that's it. That's all I remember after that. Like everything was kind of blank. I remember 
you know, a little bit of the funeral, um, nothing of the wake or anything. And then that, that, that's really it. And that was from the Killers, Kings, and Clowns video I have referenced also in the last two IAR episodes. Nick Seifert was at school that day and has a different memory of that time. Well, uh, we're sitting in school and obviously the, what had happened first was the Bensonville police came and got my sister out of class. Now, we were in the same school, but not in the same classes. So what had happened was they showed up, got us out of class, and took us into the counselor's office. And that's when they proceeded to, um, with the counselors and everything else there, ask us questions about my dad and everything else, you know. And uh, that's when I turned to my sister, and I just put my finger up to my mouth, told her, we don't talk about anything that goes on in the house. Because she started to say stuff. And then uh, we didn't talk. And then they said, well, you know, we need to talk to you guys and this and that. Now, bear in mind, we had no idea what was going on, what Joe and my mom and everybody has already been through. So then uh, we waited a little bit. And then they talked about, well, maybe we'll separate the kids and try to talk to each one of them individually. I said, no, no, you're not separating us. We're here together, but we're not talking. And then about five minutes later, my mom showed up with the FBI. That's when we got into, you know, they escorted us into the car. And uh, I seen Joey right away. And, you know, Joe told me there was a robbery. And I said to him, I said, uh, robbery, there's, there's nothing there to steal. And I wanted to continue to talk to my brother. You know, he was small, but I still wanted to try to talk to him and get information about what went on. Because he told me, he said, well, dad was hurt. Then my mom, you know, looked back at us and seeing I was trying to, you know, talk to my brother and, you know, she didn't want me to do that. So I just told him, we'll talk later. Um, and then, like I told you, that uh, what we did was we went to my grandmother's house. And uh, my brother, uh, like I told you, he kind of, uh, I would say almost, kind of went into like a, a shock almost because it was, uh, he didn't talk for a while, he, I, you know, which you can imagine, you know, he was traumatized and everything else. So we didn't discuss anything. And while all the adults were out in the other room, I plugged in the T or I just turned on the TV and it was all over the news and everything else by then. And then that's when my mom came in and told us, Hey, that your, your father, was he she didn't say killed she said your father was killed in an accident or something like that yeah. and then that's when we found out and that's also from the killers kings and clowns episode after the murder the investigators on seifert's case got nowhere the fbi and the irs also put pressure on emma to tell them what she's hiding good yeah. and let me ask you your ma what, what i mean now she's got three kids um the, the business is gone, right? She well, no, had she tried to struggle. After. Yeah, she struggled for a little bit, and then uh, she dissolved it after that. In, in I the mean, day she couldn't do it on her own. She wasn't. She didn't have the uh, the the mechanics. Or you know, my dad was. I don't want to say the brains, but my dad was the the mechanics of it. He was the the uh, engineer and everything of the of the business and everything that they did. As much as she could learn, she, you know, she could only do so much. You think about being a single mother in the 70s, and, and things were different for, for women back then. I mean, it just must have been inc incredibly hard yeah. for her. Just, just 
women, it's just the times were different and, and especially to have had that happen to, you know, and I, as I said, I've, I've read the book, but just from a, from a, a standpoint in society, it just must've been so hard for a woman, for a woman back then with, with three children. Let me interject yeah. here, what a lot of people don't understand is picture this, okay? He was killed working for the government, working with the government. A lot of people don't know this. Working for the government, trying to help him with this case and whatever. Here my mom, now he's died. He's gotten killed the way he did. Now my mom's got three kids. She's trying to raise. Now everybody walks away from us. The FBI tried to seize my father's bank accounts. They tried to take, they, they would not let us collect social security. My mom couldn't collect social security for the kids or herself until all my dad's taxes were paid. Uh, I, I mean, this was something that, and it what really begins to lay down the background yeah. of the depression stage and, and anger stage and animosity stages because the government who started this whole thing, I wouldn't say it was their fault, but now they were continuing where the mob left off. The government was making it a problem for us. We could not talk to anybody. There was no such thing as government help. There was no such thing as a psychiatrist or anybody for Joe and I to grow up and try to talk to. It's been a double-edged sword. So picture us growing up. Not only did the mob do what they did, then the government did what they did. They, they fumbled the case many times. There was so much corruption where nobody could, everybody knew who killed my father and who was responsible as you could read in the newspapers, yeah. but yet they couldn't drag these guys into court or prosecute them or convict them. And right. then the government, like I said to you, the government went through hell, it seemed like to us, that they would not let my mom collect social security. They seized some of the assets. They tried to seize his bank accounts. So here, and then picture this, Joe and I growing up our whole lives, not really even knowing what went on outside of trying to find out from ourselves because the government wasn't talking to us. There were only certain individuals in the police departments that Joe and I found people that were connected or what have you it would give us that was after a long period of time though everybody yeah, anytime exactly. you go to the police station you would always hear the same thing sorry right. this is an ongoing investigation we can't yeah. talk to you about anything but but as a young woman like getting back about my mom as a young woman can you imagine what she went through yeah, everywhere yeah. she turned everywhere she turned there was a door no one would help her here she is she's got three kids a young lady you know she was only 27 at the time this happened and here she was a young lady. And on top of it, you got all these, all the guys, you know, Uncle Joe used to always come around, Uncle Joe, and now all of a sudden nobody comes around. He's gone. All of a sudden everybody's a ghost, you know, they're all But, but they're at all the same token, this is how crooked the government is too. Oh, and Emma finds their life insurance policy after Danny dies. It was never signed. Danny's family apparently didn't help. And she gets called in front of the coroner's inquest to be cross-examined by 12 people about her husband's death. Jesus, this poor woman. In order to protect her children from the horror of how their father died and why, Emma and what family did stay involved in the children's lives just didn't talk about it. Like, at all. See, one of the things is my mom has never, ever told my brother and I anything. We've always had to look for other ways or other avenues to find out exactly what happened that day and or what led up to those events 
you know. To, to, to shield you? I, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. I, I assume that's what it was. The whole, the whole family was, uh, uh, don't ask, don't how kind of for a, a very long time. Yeah. Or, or if you did ask, it was extremely minimal, you know, it was, it was minimal information that you'd get. Yeah. And it was very, uh, you know, kind of a circle, you know, around the circle, not, uh, not to the point. That's killers, kings, and clowns again, people. You know, and it just, it affects you. It affects you. And then as you get older, you know, you get into your, your teens, let's say, and you're getting a little bit older at that point and you're asking questions and you're not getting answers that you want or any answers at all. So you start, you know, doing as much investigating as you can as a kid. I, I call it a teenager. You're still a kid, high school. Um, you know, there's no internet, cell phones, all that shit back then. So you're go to the police station and ask and they give you the, well, that's an active case. We can't tell you anything. Damn. You know, and it's like active. How active is it? That was 30 years ago. Like what yeah. are you actively doing to anything? Yeah. You know, so then you deal with, you know, as a kid, you're dealing with your anger and frustration. Um, at that point before high school, I don't remember when it was, I think it was, it was before, I think it was like seventh grade. My brother up and decided to jump to Florida. He just picked up and moved to Florida. But oh, then okay. he picks up and leaves. So then I'm back to like feeling like I just lost another father figure, you know? Yeah. Because that was. Out of it, I had no contact with him. How come? He just picked up and went. Damn. Didn't yeah. really say anything to anybody or. No. No, Damn. just let him go. And I mean, nobody knew. I don't think anybody knew where he was going, but. And that was Joe on the Invest in Yourself podcast. But what effect, pray tell, did this silence have on the Seaford children? You will have to wait until next week to find out. If you like what you hear on It's All Relative, please review this podcast on whatever format you're using. If you'd like to send me comments or suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter using at Dispecta. That's D-I-S-P-E-C-T-A. This may change now that Musk has his hands on it, so I will inform you of any changes when and if they are made. Until next time, here's Black Sabbath.